0: Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning, Lord, just humble, uh, just humble that you would send your son into this sin-filled world. Father, um, we confess that um, in our own strength, Lord, we are not worthy of that mercy, uh, but Lord, we are grateful that we get to gather this morning and look at who you are and what you've done despite us. Father, I ask that I would be helpful to your church, Lord, that I would be clear, but I would speak your truth. And Father, I ask that your church would receive it. we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. The author of Hebrews, who, like Aaron Spurlock said last week, is writing to primarily a Jewish audience. And is himself presumably a Jew. In chapter 3, he begins an exhortation. He begins this exhortation by calling us to consider Jesus. Consider Jesus because we are told he is worthy of more glory than Moses. So when we think of Moses and Jesus together and the roles that they played, that they each played in redemptive history, one of the categories that we get to see that, that they both share. Um, is the category of a prophet. And so, before we go any further, uh, my definition of a prophet, uh, take it or leave it, um, is taken largely from Deuteronomy 18, um, verses 20 through 22. Uh, but my definition of a prophet is someone who is called by God to declare His Word in which God authenticates the prophet's message by acting miraculously. And so if we use this definition, I think we can see that Moses falls into that category of a prophet. We see that Moses was given a message by God to deliver to God's people. For those who may be unfamiliar uh, with the Old Testament narrative or the story of Moses, uh, in Exodus chapter 3, God meets Moses at a burning bush. Moses is tending sheep. And he sees a bush in the distance that's burning, but it's not being consumed. So Moses curiously walks up to it uh, to inquire. And at the bush, um, God tells Moses uh, to not to come near, to take off his sandals because it's holy ground, right? And and so there, God tells Moses to go to Egypt, to go to Pharaoh, um, and to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go, right? So God gives word gives Moses a word there to take to Pharaoh and then to take to the Israelites, that he was going to free the Israelites from slavery and then lead them towards the promised land. So Moses does just this. He goes to Pharaoh and along with Aaron, Moses and Aaron, they go to Pharaoh and they tell Pharaoh, hey, let the Israelites go so, that may, so they may be free to worship the one true living God. Pharaoh, of course, denies the request and Again, for those that are familiar, God sends the ten plagues in response to Pharaoh's hard heart. So God acts miraculously by sending the ten plagues, and again, he validates the word that Moses spoke. We see another example of God validating his word through Moses when they're in the wilderness journeying towards the promised land. God tells Moses that he will provide manna from heaven by which the people are going to eat. And lo and behold, Moses communicates this word to Israel, and Israel wakes up one morning and they see Manna on the ground. Again, God validates his word through Moses. However, we are told that Moses was faithful because he testified about things that were to be spoken later. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses tells Israel that there will be a prophet after him, and that this prophet will be faithful to all that God commands of him. It's also to this future prophet, Moses is telling Israel, it's to this future prophet that you're going to have to obey him. This word given by Moses from God brings into focus how Moses is faithful as a servant in God's house. That's what the author of Hebrews tells us. That Moses' job was to point Israel toward a coming Messiah and that Moses was simply a means of pointing people in that direction. Now when we look at the life of Jesus, we can see that he himself was a prophet as well. Indeed, the great prophet. Declaring God's word to God's people. The clearest example of Jesus as a prophet, I think, can be found in the Gospel of John. And John Uh, Chapter 2, verse 19, we see Jesus engaged in a conversation. And Jesus um, Jesus answered them, "...destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up." Right. So a little bit of reflection. Um, We know that Jesus is talking there about Himself. He's not talking about the literal temple. Um, He's talking about Himself. Um, And then if we remember this fall, uh, we've finished our Gospel of Luke... And we spent a long time looking at the last week of Jesus' life, which culminated in the resurrection, right? So we see that in the resurrection, God validated the life and ministry of Jesus irrefutably. And it is thinking about the resurrection that also helps us to understand, I think, what the author of Hebrews means when he says that Jesus is faithful over God's house as a son, See, Jesus' work differed from Moses' in that Jesus was set over God's house in the place of authority. And as the Son, Jesus is the rightful heir to all things. So to be a son and to be the heir of all things by extension and necessity means that he's over all things. And so Jesus, after making the purification of sins, sat down at the right hand of his Father, and he took his place, too, as the rightful heir of all things, and he sat down, and now Lord over all. And so I think just a point of clarification, house here is understood. We're told that we are his house, so house there understands, to be understood, the people of God. So when we say that Jesus sits over the house in authority, it's to say that Jesus sits over the people of God in a place of authority. And so, thus, while Moses is an important figure in redemptive history, that's what the author here in Hebrews is trying to get us to see, that Moses isn't an insignificant person, but he's actually a person of great significance. Um, he's nonetheless uh, significant in God's house. And Jesus is over God's house. So Moses plays a, a key role in redemptive history, but Christ is our redemption himself. And as such, he sits over God's people. And so the, the author gives a really helpful I think, illustration. I've tried all week to come up with a better one, and I just couldn't. Um, you see this house and builder illustration. Um, you go look at a nice house. Um, and you see, man, the house is gorgeous, right? A um, million-dollar home. You can walk in and you can look at like the cabinets, top of the line, uh, the spiral staircase, uh, and you can think, man, that house is nice. But then you compare a house versus the one who designed the house, it becomes pretty clear who's the one that's worthy of more glory. It's the designer of the house. Um, and so therefore... Uh, Because Christ is counted worthy of more glory than Moses, we are told not to harden our hearts. The author here uh, inserts a quotation from Psalm 95 and talks about this time of rebellion uh, for Israel. Um, And the time here that, that the psalmist has in view is after the exodus of Egypt, but before entering the promised land. So 40 years 40-year uh, period that we're talking about of Israel wandering in the desert. Um, that's what uh, the psalmist has in mind, and that's also what the author of Hebrews has in mind when he quotes, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years, therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. I have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. A point that I think is helpful for us uh, to understand from this is that despite Israel seeing firsthand God's strong, loving kindness towards them by rescuing them out of slavery, they were still not at peace with God. And their not having peace with God was a direct result of not believing in God's loving kindness and His goodness towards Israel. See, God had promised to provide for His people since the beginning. Like Aaron mentioned last week in Genesis 3, chapter 15, we see God make a promise to send a Messiah that would crush the serpent's head. And so God, from the very beginning, has promised to preserve, protect, and to provide for His people. And God most clearly demonstrated that to Israel by rescuing them from slavery. Israel's biggest need was that they were enslaved to Egypt. They didn't have the means to escape that slavery, but it was pressing in on them and they weren't able to get out from underneath it. So Israel may have had other needs, but their biggest one... Without question, was that they were enslaved to Egypt. So God demonstrates his loving kindness towards them by rescuing them. But God's promise of consistent provision for Israel differed from the pattern of consistent provision Israel experienced while in slavery. I'll say that again God's promise of consistent provision for Israel differed from the pattern of consistent provision Israel experienced while in slavery. It may be helpful to think, uh, imagine that you were in prison, right? That would be a bad place to be. I think we can all agree that if you're in prison, that's not the place that you're desiring to be. But it doesn't come without some perks. I mean, at least you know where you're going to sleep every night, Right? Cell C2, you know, that's, that's your cell. You're going to be there every night. <coughs> you know what time morning's going to come. You know at you know, 6 o'clock, they're going to flip those lights. That's signaling morning. You know at 7.30 a.m., breakfast is going to be there. And if it's Monday, you know that you're getting powdered eggs, banana, and toast. You know at noon, they're going to serve you lunch. And at 6 o'clock, you know you're going to get dinner. You know what your job is, maybe mopping the floors, doing laundry, or washing dishes. But at least you know what your job is, and at least you know you're going to have a job. Your job security, pretty good. You knew that your basic needs were going to be provided for, but you also knew the pattern of when and how your needs were going to be met. But you're in prison. I think this is some of what happened with Israel. They had been freed from prison. They had been freed from slavery. But they were also free from the predictable pattern of provision that they had in slavery. Now they were in a desert with a promise that God would consistently provide for them, but not with a promise of knowing exactly when or how He would do so. Over time, we see that Israel began to doubt the promises of God, and ultimately rebelled as a result. I think if we're honest, I think we have to say that we identify with Israel. Right? I think if we all searched ourselves, we'd be found saying, yeah, that's my story too. As we begin to doubt the promises of God, and so we look for patterns of provision outside of Him, and we begin to trust in those patterns rather than the solid promises of God. But what happens when those patterns are there no more? Believing the promises of God, I think, is the great fight of the Christian life. And denying those promises is the deceitfulness of sin. A battle in our hearts that occurs every day when we wake up, I think, is to believe that God loves us, that He cares for us, and that He's provided everything that we need. And everything else in this world is trying to get us to believe the opposite, that God stopped caring, that He doesn't love you, that His love is reserved for some special elite group of people. I think that's what the enemy tries to get us to believe every day. And so it is the great fight of the Christian life in the face of those lies, when the enemy tries to throw those things at us, is to believe, grab hold, and trust the promises of God. Finally, we come to the last couple verses of our text this morning. And it reads, Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it, For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So I think in light of what's been said and what we've read so far, I think we have to ask ourselves two questions. First, why did Israel fail? And what makes us different than Israel? We are told that good news came to Israel just as it has come to us. The promise of entering God's eternal rest still stands if we trust Him. Israel had witnessed things that are difficult for my mind to comprehend. Let's think about some of the things that Israel experienced. The ten plagues, right? Turn water into blood. I don't know about you, but I've never seen that. I believe it. Because it's in God's Word. But if I'm honest, it's hard for me to wrap my mind about what that really would have looked like. The locust? Again, really difficult for me to get my mind around. The parting of the Red Sea? Israel had experienced, probably like no other, the strong, mighty hand of God acting on their behalf, and yet they still rebelled. They rebelled because they didn't actually possess faith. We're told that their heart was evil and unbelieving. They had a knowledge of God intellectually, but their hearts weren't actually changed by what they had seen and heard. So I think that's the answer to question one. Why did Israel fail? Question two. What makes us different from Israel? It's that God, through His Holy Spirit, has granted us faith. Through another prophet that came after Moses, Ezekiel. Ezekiel gives this word in Ezekiel 36, uh, verses 26 and 27. And I, this is the Lord speaking to Israel, to His people... And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So what makes us different from Israel? It doesn't really have anything to do with us. But it's got everything to do with God. In Christ our penalty for sin has been paid for. And for those of us that are hoping and believing in Christ for our salvation, then we've been given the Holy Spirit. And we're told from Ezekiel that this Spirit causes us to walk in obedience to God. This Spirit conforms us to the very image of God. And so that is the difference between unbelieving Israel and us. Is that in Christ our sins have been paid for. And through the Spirit we now believe that they've been paid for. Another lesson that I learned uh, during my band days uh, was the importance of the conductor. Um, For those of you that this is a totally foreign uh, illustration, I apologize. Um, But in an orchestra, uh, you've got a semicircle, uh, and the band sits all the way around, right? Uh, There's an order to it. Uh, I don't remember that. Uh, I'm sorry. Um, But in the very center uh, is the conductor, right? So you've got the band here, and then the conductor faces the band, right? And he got the whole thing. If you watch him, I mean, the, the conductor is just moving lightning fast, right? Crazy, flipping pages, moving his hands. Uh, but one of the things that the conductor does is the conductor keeps time. He is the, the key timekeeper for the whole show. And so I learned that uh, when you play for an hour or so, uh, the odds of getting off beat, uh, for me at least, were pretty high. Um, maybe not for other people, but for me they were extremely high. Uh, And so the teacher, my my teacher instructed us that if that happens, don't panic, but don't put your instrument down, but just calmly look at the conductor and wait. Wait for him to signal you when to come in, when to stop, when to get louder, when to stand up at the very end. But let's think, what if that conductor didn't show up? The whole show would have turned into chaos, right? The drums, the percussion, uh, they were always uh, the most proud, at least in my school. And so they would have come in early because they would have been eager. And then that would have thrown the woodwinds off. And then the brass would have come in high. And then, like the whole show would have been a total train wreck without the conductor giving pause, giving instruction, guiding the orchestra. And so I remember first learning how to do this. I remember first reading my sheet music and then trying to see the conductor, and it just was a total debacle. Uh, Could only see one thing at a time. Didn't have the skill set to be able to to see both of those things. Um, But I remember by the time uh, I had finished uh, middle school, um, I had gotten a little bit better at doing that, learning that (laughs) art. Of seeing the music in front of me, but, but seeing the conductor behind it. Uh, and the best way that I know how to describe it is if you really do. You learn how to, to see through your music stand and, and you learn to see the conductor. Um, and so I think it, it's a similar thing for the Christian life is that we're supposed to exercise wisdom and discernment through life's challenges, right? Life's challenges. Life can be the sheet music and that illustration and the conductor can be Christ. So it's not that we are oblivious to all of what's going on in life, but it's that we see through those circumstances and we see Christ. And we focus more on Christ than we do our life circumstances. Because we know what our biggest need is my biggest need and your biggest need is to have our sins forgiven. And we've done something offensive to a God that we cannot fix. That's our biggest need. As a result of that, we're stuck into slavery to ourselves. But when we look to Christ, we see that He's paid for those. That He has redeemed us and He has reconciled us to God. And so... He seals us with His Spirit and cries, Abba, Father, and leads us in obedience and gives us hope for His second coming, His second advent. And so Moses was, the faithful, was faithful in God's house as a servant by declaring God's word to the world around. But more specifically, Moses was faithful in God's house by pointing Israel towards Christ. Here in 2017, we have the same great privilege. We have that same privilege of declaring God's word to the world around us. But more importantly, we have the great privilege of being able to point people back to the finished work of Christ and encourage them to look forward to his return. What a wonderful thought! And so, as we continue considering Jesus and His glory, we fight the deceitfulness of sin because our faith is united to Christ by the Spirit. Christ has purchased our freedom with our peace with God, and in this we rejoice. So we're going to transition now to a time where we take communion. We do this every week at Midlands. If you're a member here uh, and you don't have an issue with your brother or your sister, uh, then the table is open for you. Um, If you're visiting from another church and and you're hoping and believing in Christ and you're in good standing with that local body, then the table is open for you too. This is an opportunity for us as a body to reflect and worship in response to what God has done for us. The table is open because Christ's sacrifice has made peace with God once and for all. If you're here today and you're not hoping and believing in Christ, then I ask you to not partake in this time. But I do ask you to take this time to reflect and consider the things that you've just heard. Consider that peace on earth, peace in your own life, only comes through the redemption and reconciliation of your sins. And the only person that can give you that is Jesus. If you want to talk with me after, I'd be more than happy to do that. Or if you just talk to anybody here at Midlands, they'd love to to talk more about that with you. Um, But I'm going to pray and then I think the band may come up and and lead us in a song. And um, at that time, go ahead and take communion. The tables are there in the back. Let's pray. Father, um, thank you for your promise of consistent provision. God, I ask uh, for help in my life, Lord, as I want to begin to to look away from that promise. Father, I ask that you would quickly draw my heart back to Christ. Uh, Father, where you have demonstrated your love and your care for your people. Father, You have proven Yourself trustworthy again and again and again and again. And so, Father, it is in You that we hope. Father, it is in You that we trust. And Father, it is in You that we have peace and we rejoice. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.